visceral and revelatory, Ross Crean's forthcoming opera, The Great God Pan, explores themes of scientific hubris, transcendental medicine, and unexplainable supernatural behavior. We recently featured Ross's opera in our podcast on episode one, and we'd recommend you go back and listen to it if you haven't already. I'm producer Nicole Collant, and you're listening to Monsters Out of the Closet. Composer Ross Crean jokingly says he writes strange music that he likes to listen to when he is by himself eating raw cookie dough in a dark closet. However, his music has also been referred to as funny, virtuosic, exceptionally different, and outstanding quality, stirring you deep with undertones of humanity. A prolific collaborator with a focus on the evocative and lyrical, Ross is currently resident composer and creative director for Nebula Creatives, a multimedia firm based in Chicago. He is also a signee with Parma Recordings and most recently released the recording of his opera The Great God Pan on August 11, 2017. The Great God Pan will premiere live on stage in Chicago next year on March 10, 2018. Talking more about this new opera is Ross Crean. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Well, first things first, um, for anyone who listened to the episode or didn't listen to the episode with the excerpts from Great God Pan, can you talk a little bit about the opera? Sure. Um, it's, uh, it's based on the um, 1894 horror novella by Arthur Machen. Um, I loved that book because I discovered it in undergrad in college and um, it, there were a lot of things that interested me, particularly the point that Stephen King considered it one of the scariest horror um, novels that he had ever uh, read. And so I definitely had to go and search for it. And um, I, find, I, found a, I found a different perspective when I first read it than when I came back and read it um, just a, a couple of years back. Um, so what I, what I decided to do was... Um, I decided to give the characters, uh, the female characters in particular, a bit more of their voices um, in that story. So what basically happens is it's a lot of hearsay from the male character's point of view. um, And the women don't get really much dialogue in the story itself, in the original novel. So uh, it's about a doctor who finds a he discovers a procedure to bring um, someone into the other dimension that they can, they call that the great God pan and it goes horribly wrong. And about 20 years later, one of the witnesses to that surgery um, finds all these incredibly strange things happening in London, particularly a lot of mass suicides going on. And, um, with the help of two of his friends, a detective and the uh, one of the, the one of the detective's friends, uh, they find out that there is a a central figure in the uh, no as that's that's been causing a lot of these things to happen. So they they're slowly putting pieces together and they're finding out that it's someone that's not really so much of this world. And it's a really supernatural piece with. 
a, a lot of really beautiful uh, songs. Um, yeah, I my personal favorite was definitely In the Garden. I was just playing that on repeat in my house. My roommates started singing along too. <laughs> it's a it's a really compelling piece. And uh, I was curious if you had a favorite song um, that you composed, uh, one that was really exactly what you wanted to bring to the story. Yeah, you know, so there 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 are two. I will take advantage of that question. There are two. Um, in the garden, I loved so much because I, I wrote that piece before I even considered writing the opera. Um, and as someone who, as someone who, no, I mean, I was an opera singer myself and I did a lot of my own, I performed a lot of my own works as well in concert when I would tour. And that was just one of those things. I remember reading that book and wanting to write something that was uh, a a bit out of the norm that can play with an internal piano. So like when I, mean, when I mean internal piano, that means like you're basically doing a lot of effects and plucking the inside strings of the right. piano and not touching the keys, really. Um, and when finally it came time to start work on the opera as a whole, I it was just screaming to be included. And it came at just the right time um, because it was it was pretty much inspired by the character of Rachel, who has had this relationship with. Um, the character Helen, and it's basically a love song in madness and fear at the same time. So I wanted to I wanted to write a text and write a song that was going to be able to reflect a lot of that complexity and just break down, um, just a complete like nervous breakdown and fear. So that was that was definitely the first one that came. The second one that I found really important was the song Gethsemane, and Sarah Thompson Johansson sings that on the recording, and it, I, I wanted. It's one of the. It's one of the things I changed about the original story was Helen in the original story was such an antichrist character and was very much played as an evil being, and it was very black and white. And as I was giving Helen her voice and her own character and let that development happen. Um, I wanted to give her her own little like Gethsemane moments where the audience is like, is she really that evil of a person? Right. Is she, isn't she? Yes. Yes. Because I mean, I think it's such a subjective thing, especially when you have a story that's based so much on innuendo and the things you don't see as the things that are terrifying that you still don't have a hundred percent information. So why not bring a subjectivity to that character into the things that are happening. One thing uh, I thought was really interesting was you mentioned like how you're giving voice to these women in the story and um, in the gardens kind of like this, this dark love song between two women. And I was curious, how was um, kind of sexuality and gender at play um, with your connection to the story? Well, yeah, I, you know, I have, I myself am queer non-binary and I haven't, I haven't been able, I haven't considered myself non-binary as far as using the label for extremely long. I've always felt this way. I never felt like I was either gender. Um, and all of a sudden, like you know, a couple years back when the rise of like the research and just the realization of the fact that there is such a thing as non-binary 
it just it, it reached me and I said like, oh, this is this is who I am. Um, so gender for me was a very big thing because as someone who always thought, well, like maybe I'm just biologically male and that there's really nothing to it, and having a realization is I'm not I'm not male and I'm not female. I always loved to look at either gender with an open eye and see, you know, not stick to the stereotypes. So for me, I was seeing in this story just a lot of point of view from the male side of things only. And it was a very narrow-minded, in my opinion, side of things toward women and their, especially for women who are open about their own sexuality and are just sexually open in general, how that was such an evil thing in this story. So gender can be a huge thing for me as far as the conflict that it can cause. And I wanted to bring that forward in this project. Do you, do you think that gender is something that um, hasn't really been addressed well in horror? Or do you feel like it's always been there as something that kind of underlies horror? I don't think it's always been there, really. I think that some stories like this have touched on it. But obviously, back then, we just didn't have this awareness that we do now um, you know, on, on the topic of, of gender and sexuality. And so I feel like there's there's probably, little, I mean, there's obviously gender, I think, has an underlying tone in things for sure. I don't think that it was something that people, that any creators really wanted to address in particular. But I think now we're getting to that point, whether it's film or music, anything that's horror related, where gender can become a really big topic to touch on. And I think for some people, it is a scary topic. And I think for others, it's a very enlightening topic. So um, I think it's just, I think it just matters how it's approached. One thing I was uh, really interested in was the figure of Pan in your story and what Pan kind of represents. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the play The Bacchae by Euripides. Yes. Um, Pan is this um, chaotic figure kind of within that story, um, this figure of paradox um, kind of exposing like the dichotomy um, between gender and class and political power. And right. I was interested um, kind of how for a story that takes place in, you know, Victorian England, how such a interesting and chaotic pagan figure plays such a prominent role and what that kind of plays with with um kind of our our ideas about gender to me pan was always i mean because i was i was raised as pagan so pan to me was always one side of a duality right um and I still felt that way in this, especially because, and there is such like there, there, there's such a, a meld of um, Christian and pagan ideology throughout this story. And I think that's, I think that's why it got a little, I think it's why things get so messed up throughout the story. <laughs> it's, it's this, it's this idea that there has to be a, a, there, that there, there's still a, a, there still needs to be a woman, there still needs to be a man, 
for for creation. We you know, we have Mary at the very beginning, who you know we find out is um, you know the the mother of of Helen, and Pan is obviously the 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 seed for the the creation of Helen. So um, I saw that very much still as a binary. Um, I chose to, to to keep it binary just to pay homage to the story, the original story. But I, I decided I wanted to then change the character of Austin because of that. Austin in the book is originally a male. And I decided that I wanted to make Austin um, female. And th- Austin's pretty much how I figured out that I was non-binary. Yeah. <laughs> so... I felt like Austin was much more of the representation of of being a non-binary person who is who lives in male society. They live in these male social circles in England, but then still has this. We find out later this this sympathy and, and sense of empathy for Helen as well, and so. Austin very much represents the conflict going on in gender there. And also can kind of provide some in for the audience too, who is kind of being torn by kind of the complexity of what the story is, whether or not Helen is evil or not. I mean, we can see that tension through Austin. Oh, absolutely. You know, in, in, in the, in, in the, Let's see. Act two, scene two. We have a very huge confrontation scene, and Austin very much is troubled by what's going on. Austin has been with the our lead male characters this whole time as one of their team, but you see, as this, we have this whole conversation through the opera that's being sung, um, where we have like four 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 people going at once trying to argue argue their points and austin is just absolutely like you know i can't take this can we just get this done with because she just doesn't want to deal with it anymore because she doesn't know what to do there's 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 a there's a sense of guilt after having been so proactive in trying to well i mean to be honest just trying to make sure that helen is destroyed there's a realization there in austin saying like this might not have been the way to go. This is wrong. So in, in doing that, I don't necessarily want to tell the audience, like, this is how it is. I want the audience to walk away with those questions so that there could be a further dialogue about this. And as far as as far as I have been concerned with, with like, the conversations I've had with other people um, about, about this opera, um, it has sparked that. It's, it's sparked a lot of a lot of further dialogue um, about gender. And particularly when I mentioned the fact that this was a project that had me realize my own non-binary, no, my my own non-binary identity, that people get more interested in than knowing about that too. Right. Is this something that needs to happen more in kind of art and maybe more specifically in horror that we need these more diverse perspectives um, in terms of um, kind of shaping the story and being shaped by the story. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, we're, we're seeing that we're seeing, we are seeing a comeuppance of more queer horror, um, particularly in film. And I think that's, I think that's wonderful. And I, but I do think for a very long time, we have lived in stereotypes in the horror genre. And I mean, look at Cabin in the Woods. There's, there's a truth to that, you know, where, you know, and, and, and I, and I think that while some horror makers want to bring more diversity, sometimes it becomes, it looks, it, it comes across as a sense of tokenism mm-hmm. where we have the one representative gay kid or the one representative black kid or, you know, and instead of, instead of, instead of just having a good representation of diversity itself, it's let's have this whole incredibly straight, cis white world. And then we have the one token person. So, um, I do see some filmmakers now particularly trying to bring more of a sense of diversity and not having to put a spotlight on a character saying, look, we included someone different, <laughs> you know, yeah. just letting that person be a natural part of that environment. Uh, what has been, or I don't know if uh, you have any examples of like horror m- movies, horror, horror stories, anything that you feel has been really representative and exciting about these types of changes in the genre? Yeah. Um, I have to find the name. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there's a movie called Rift. Um, I believe it's Icelandic. And um, I'm trying to remember who. Um, I'm trying. Oh, Erlinger Thoridsen. I feel like it's just one of those movies that it's a very slow burn into some very disturbing material. And it's basically about this, this man who reunites with an ex-lover in a cabin in the middle of nowhere and the things uh. that are from that. Okay. And um, one of the more recent movies that I, I really liked, like it, it kind of plays on both stereotype and not having to explain the diversity that's in there. There's a movie called The Babysitter, which in the heart of things is, um, it definitely draws on the more stereotypical idea of, well, here's five kids, here's five teenagers or college kids, Mm -hmm. um, but they're all Satan worshipers who, who are, um, who are looking for sacrifices from, by young, no, no, uh, using younger children, like, middle-aged school kids as sacrifices and um no one of the girls is the babysitter who has just gained this one kid's trust and as no he goes no he goes to bed and he wakes up and he looks downstairs and she's invited her friends over and one's asian and one is black and um they kind of innuendo that one is is queer which i didn't i don't uh, i can't say i don't appreciate it but at at this point, I think we're beyond the innuendo. Right. We're beyond need for an innuendo. Um, but as far as just having a sense of ethnic diversity, I love the fact that they just include those characters and didn't make, like, they didn't give themselves a parade about it. So, yeah, I, 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 I appreciate it for that fact. However, I think we can take another step forward as far as that's concerned. Right. So what's next for you? What can people expect from the the live premiere in 2018? All that good stuff. 
Yeah, so we're in the beginning stages of that. I'm looking forward to that. So I think uh, it, the world premiere of the full production is March 10th, 2018. Um, Chicago Fringe Opera, which is a um, pretty big indie company here in Chicago. They're very innovative, um, are going to premiere it. And um, they approached me about doing this when we were actually in the studio recording the album. And um, my hope is that we're going to have really cool animation and shadow work. And I would love to see this actually steampunk style a <laughs> little bit, a little bit dystopian. Nice. Uh, but I can't control that. We'll see what they come up with. For um, sure. But I have mentioned that to them, so we'll see. Um, I can't control everything. So uh, I see a very, again, I wanted to make sure that the scary things are not seen, but I wanted there to be an element of some innuendoed visual there that they can see that something is happening that will still give them an idea like, oh, that like, like what the other world would look like or uh, giving them like a shadow view of what Pan might look like, even though you never see the 100% visual of him, you know, um, and things like that. So I'm, I'm hoping that, I'm hoping we have a very, uneasy and and intense uh experience of 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 this performance because that's kind of the goal <laughs> and um you know at the same time i just hope that people can walk away just thinking it's cool and then again let's just just really wanting to have further dialogue and and walk away with the questions and if that means that they want to talk to me about it i'm more than happy to do so when i'm there at the performance you know so um but as far as as far as what i'm doing with Further projects. I'm, I'm I'm currently composing a LGBTQ plus themed uh, micro opera called The Times of Nightfall. I'm doing that with a non-binary librettist named Aiden Feldkamp, and uh, we will hopefully be uh, workshopping that at Bard College this spring before we take it hopefully to um, Opera America and then the, and then here to Chicago as well. And that's basically going to be like a sequel to the opera Don Giovanni. And um, we're doing it a little Grindhouse style. Okay. Um, I'm very influenced by Grindhouse um, <laughs> project. And I found a picture of Rose McGowan, and I cannot remember the other actress's name now, um, from Planet Terror. And there was, um, uh, you know, Robert Rodriguez's film. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, they uh they have um it's it's Rose McGowan and this other actress on the motorcycle and the actress is just holding on to Rose McGowan on the bike and Rose is just looking at the camera and I was like these are my two characters so we're focusing on the character of Anna and Elvira who are who were in Don Giovanni and Don Giovanni for those who don't know Don Giovanni at the end gets dragged to hell for his wicked ways and Anna and Elvira. Elvira is very much in love with Don Giovanni and Anna um, is kind of the ingenue who just doesn't let the wool get pulled over her eyes. So um, this is like the aftermath, the alternative reality, reality aftermath of what happens after uh, Don Giovanni is over. And um, we find out that sometimes um, the unex no, unexpected romance happens when you're grieving. Right. I I'm, Color me intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> um, how can people follow you and your work to stay in um, in touch about all these really cool developments? Sure. Um, they can go to 
my website, which is uh, rosscrean.com, R-O-S-S-C-R-E-A-N, as Nancy, dot com. Um, or they can also go to my artist page on Facebook, um, just Ross Crean there. Um, I also post on SoundCloud. Sometimes I give little snippets of my current projects and give little teasers away for that. Um, and that's just soundcloud.com slash Ross dash Korean. Um, so yeah, they, like honestly, you Google me and I'll show up. <laughs> Fantastic. And for any listeners, we will have all those links and all the details on our website with the post um, for this episode. And of course, our website is monstersoutofthecloset.com. Um, I want to just thank you one more time, Ross, for coming on our uh, podcast and for sharing your vision and your art with us. This has been a really fascinating talk. So thank you so much for thank sharing. You so much. It. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. You, um, I listened to episode one already, and I, I'm so excited for what the future is going to have um, for you, you too. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this interview with Ross, subscribe to Monsters Out of the Closet. We look forward to sharing more conversations with groundbreaking LGBTQ creators in the horror genre. Our next full fiction episode, Roots, will be released on November 24th. Submission cutoffs for our December episode, Endings, will be on November 26th. Moving forward, full fiction episodes will be released on the last Friday of the month and submissions for the following month will close the Sunday after that. For more details about our release schedule, submissions, and episode themes, please visit our website monstersoutofthecloset.com and check out our submit page. Thanks so much to everyone who has listened so far. Please keep spreading the word. We really appreciate it so much.